I've just honestly been fascinated by how the system has evolved and just what the athletes can accomplish. It's, it's really quite unique and it challenges you in different ways. You cannot be black and white. You got to think outside the box with all your treatment methods. That was Patricia Roney. And this is episode 110 of the Inspired Souls podcast. Hi, I'm Carolyn, and I'm a roadrunner. And I'm Kim, and I'm a trail runner. Welcome to our podcast, where we bring the communities of trail and road running together and explore the parallels between running and life. Patricia Roney is a Winnipeg-based runner and physiotherapist who works with Athletics Canada as a classifier for para-athletes competing in track and field. All para-sport athletes need to be classified in order to compete, so there's a system in place to determine eligibility based on their impairment. And Patricia, well, she's right at the center of this fascinating and evolving scene. She's also a very accomplished athlete and runner herself. She started out on the track at the University of Victoria, found some success on the roads after that, but since 2014 has been spending time developing her trail and mountain running skills, often landing herself on the podium of many 25 to 50k races. In 2019, Patricia was selected for the Canadian team to compete at the World Mountain Running Championships in Patagonia, but ultimately had to turn down the offer when it conflicted with her work as the lead therapist for the Para-Athletics World Championships. We learned a lot about parasport in this conversation, and we hope you do too. So without further delay, let's get into it with Patricia Roney. Well, hello, Patricia, and welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here tonight. Thanks for having me. Yes, we are so pumped to talk to you tonight because in addition to being a fantastic runner, um, trail runner and road runner, you also work with runners in your professional life. So before we dig into all of that, you're also relatively new to Winnipeg, aren't you? And you just uh, moved here not that long ago from Victoria, BC. So why the change from the coast to the prairies and what do you think of life on the prairies? Uh, yeah, that's correct. So um, 2022 has been my first year in Winnipeg. Um, so it was a change that kind of came about from on my partner's behalf. He got posted here. And so we had to make that decision to come out. Um, so it was a bit of an adjustment for me. Um, my life has always been around mountains and trails and the ocean. Um, and so Winnipeg, as you know, is a very flat land. I didn't know it was possible for it to be that flat. Um, you didn't yeah, know so. it was possible to go for like a two hour run and get nine feet of elevation. <laughs> yeah, like well to see the road continue on and on and on. Um, it's, a it's just a different viewpoint. So I've been settling in this last year. Yeah, I experienced the same thing when I moved there, Patricia, from Comox, direct from Comox, Vancouver Island to Winnipeg. And I remember my my friend, Sarah, my running coach at the time, she looked at some of my data and she's like, um, is that humanly possible to run for 30K and get, yeah, like three meters of gain? I think we'll be adding in a way fast and a few other things to your training. But um, outside of the flat and the straight roads, you know, there's the weather too. That's a bit of an adjustment. How did you find winter? Yeah, that's a, that was a shock to the system. I was always afraid of my eyelashes falling off. I didn't know if it would actually happen or not. Um, so I took to wearing, yeah, goggles for runs. Um, to be honest with you, as part of the running community here in Winnipeg, that really helped get you through. Um, when they first told me, I met some up with some people, they told me, yeah, we continue to run throughout the winter. And I was like, how is that possible? Like the, it's right? minus 40, <laughs> minus 50. Yeah. I remember my first long run with the group. I packed up my water bottles as usual. And then very like 10 minutes into the run, I realized they're completely frozen. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you start learning the tricks of the trade and people start helping you out. And yeah. Yeah. So some learning curves for sure. Yeah. The bladder and hose just don't work in the winter. No. No. Nope, and I never <laughs> realized that at the beginning. So you start learning. <laughs> Me and too. Yeah, the pants that you might wear in winter in one one province aren't winter pants in another province. So no. You wear that too and, yeah, you so to how long has it been then? Like, are you getting used to things and getting used to the flat and the cold? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. Um, I am. 
the, it was a very, very long season this year. I think the most challenging piece was not so, so much the cold, but for me, it was actually probably the shoulder season. So March, April, where I'm expecting it to be warmer and you can get out onto the trails again and mm-hmm. um, just realizing that it's just different here and you don't have that the ability to run on the trails March, April, May, because they're yeah. still so flooded. Well, yeah. and this was, a, from what I hear, a really unusual year. You know, I spent six years in Manitoba and it, it was rare not to be on trails by at least April. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Well, you do uh, both road and trail running, and you have said that trail running puts the biggest smile on your face. So let's dig into that a little bit. What do you love so much about running on the trails? I think it comes with um, the freedom. Like you aren't clocked into your watch. There's not one kilometer that's the same as another kilometer. You might be scrambling up a rock on one. And so you just, it's honestly the sense of, freedom and you're just always exploring um I love being on trails that I've never been on so that's kind of what I'll seek out before I did track through university and and shifted over to road and ended up with a few injuries like pretty severe injuries that took me away from running and Mm. um I was told I would I should I was very highly encouraged not to continue running and so I didn't for some time and then got into different sports and then eventually I guess I started back on softer trails and I'm just going to see what's possible because that's really what I love is running so that's kind of how I got into trail running was I guess 2014 2015 just testing the waters again after having to take some time off and then you just realize there's such an amazing community out there and just it's funny some of the the parks you've been on before you just never really explore to their full capacity until you get out into the Mm. bush yes Um, it's a good point yeah. Now, did the injuries that you experienced, I'm not sure what time frame that was, but did that inform you going into physiotherapy, dealing with your own injuries? Do you know what? It, it didn't actually, in the sense that my injuries came while I was kind of finishing physio. And then as I've been a physiotherapist and as a new physio, but it really gave me an appreciation for what patients go through. And I think mm-hmm. really enabled me to understand kind of what uh, some of the the challenges that they, they experience and I had some different injuries that weren't so common and that often get misdiagnosed and so I think that just helped me in a way to uh, to dig deeper for certain patients and and so it, it really wasn't what led me to go into physio but it's helped me kind of take a different approach when I am treating patients now yeah 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 and I don't know where I heard this but I, I it might have been from your partner Alain he was saying that you get often get given the really difficult patients, the patients that no other therapist can figure out what's going on with them. Uh, is that true? And do you think that your own experience with injury also maybe led you to being uh, kind of a, a good detective that way? I really enjoy digging deeper into a condition. So if a patient presents with something that they've been frustrated with, I, I really enjoy kind of that research piece. So um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that I, that's kind of my, just a personal interest of mine. And so I do have patients kind of that I see that might've been referred from word of mouth that kind of were a bit frustrated or, or patients that might've felt that they, I guess, weren't getting the answers they wanted. But mm-hmm. um, I, I guess it's just, I, I really do enjoy kind of digging down a little bit deeper. Um, mm-hmm. And so kind of working with them on that front. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, both Carolyn and I have come to the place in our careers largely because we were doing exactly the same thing. We kind of went in different directions doing it, but we really wanted to know the why behind people getting injured. And we were tired of just treating symptoms and wanted to treat causes. Carolyn went down the more nutritional approach and coaching approach. I went down a biomechanical gait analysis approach, but I'm curious, you know, We'll get into this, I'm sure, in a few minutes, but you work also work with elite Paralympic athletes. And, you know, we've identified many times before with other guests on the podcast that one of the biggest inhibitors to performance is time lost due to injury, right? Exactly. And so if you can train sustainably without injury, it's, it's significant. And part of that is not just band-aiding things, right? Like really digging deep to figure out why something is happening because A can lead to B, can lead to C, can lead to mm-hmm. D. So, you know, I guess I'm not sure what my question is there other than do you have further comments on that stream of thought? 
No, I mean, I completely agree. And that's kind of the approach we take. And with all the athletes now, we kind of have an approach of um, like initial screening to help prevent injuries from developing. In para-athletics, like I work specifically with track and field para-athletes, a lot of the athletes, if they've acquired the injury um, versus if it's congenital, if they've acquired it, they're using muscles and their body in new ways that they're not adapted to, they're not accustomed to. So just having that awareness of like, okay, what might predispose them to an injury in the future? How can we minimize that from happening? Those are some of the things we, mm. we consider. Um, and yeah, so definitely kind of the time frame in their life when they might have um, sustained that injury um, versus if it's from birth, essentially. Right. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, that that is really fascinating. And also, you know, on the flip side, I think being forced to take time off because of an injury can also have its own sort of hidden blessings. And I think maybe mm-hmm. you've experienced that too, of like, you've had to take some time off for things. And in that time off, you know, three, four months due to, I'm not sure what the injuries were, but mm-hmm. there is like a difference when you come back, you appreciate it more. There's more gratitude for just being able to move the body. So can you, like, how did that play out for you? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's huge. And a lot of people don't realize that, but yeah, my volume training volume is not super high even now, just because I know what my threshold is and for injury and I, but my body, that's how my body works best is a bit lower volume. Um, yeah. So I took time off, take time off and it forces you to kind of find new hobbies, new interests and just, yeah, really appreciate when you are coming back to sport. Um, and you, and you just have a bit of a different outlook. You definitely appreciate it a lot more. You don't take it for granted when you're, when you're injury free, I think you really embrace those times. Um, yeah, for sure. and, and you, you do learn so much about your body and just how it all is connected. One of like, so one of the injuries I had was a Lewis Frank fracture of my foot Oh, and okay. it was essentially misdiagnosed and, um, just kept on getting the diagnosis, kept on getting pushed and pushed. So it kind of was a snowball effect and had other secondary issues to that as to my point of a leads to b leads to c leads to d exactly yes. and then you end up with <laughs> this whole stream so i took a i mean that's just one of the ones but yeah you come back and and you are stronger i think mentally and you also realize yeah you can come back and um if you take time off a lot of the times you're mentally fresher and you've just spent the time focusing on um strengthening other areas of your body that you might not have done put the time into before So I think that's kind of when I am injured, I focus on, okay, well, I can still do this and I can still close that gap that might have been present before, but you just didn't put the time in to address that. So that's what I mean by, yeah, you can come back stronger. And I think um, that's how I've approached it. Yes, definitely come back stronger if you use that time wisely and look for like, what can I still work on as opposed Mm -hmm. to like, poor me, I can't run, you know, Um, because that's very easy to fall into, isn't it? Yeah. All right. So again, trail running is your, your number one love. So do you remember kind of your origin story into trail running? You said you came up through the track background and then you went to the road. So what was your first trail race? And you've sort of told us what you love about it, but you've continued to do trail running at quite a high mm-hmm. level and even competed at like for Canada, I believe. At- I didn't, I, I, I made the team, but I didn't actually, I had a conflict with work. So I actually didn't race that race. Right. Okay. Um, and that was the World Mountain Running Championships in Patagonia oh. that year in 2019. Oh, so it was actually oh. a destination I, I had been on my list and then it happened no to be there. Kidding. But it was just, um, I was on, flights were booked, everything was booked, but we were overseas with the team and it just, the timing didn't work out. And and I, you've got to prioritize different things in life. And I mm-hmm. do enjoy my work I do as well. And it was just one of those decisions that you had to make. So um, yeah, that's, but, that's um, rough, <laughs> but do, do any races stand out as favorites? Yeah. 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 And how I started was actually, it was actually yeah, so getting back into it in terms of trail, I think it was 2015 and ish. And that was more of doing the shorter distances, like up to 10 K and 15 K and absolutely love that. And then some friends were heading down, I guess, 2017, 2018 down to the States to do, um, a 50k and some were doing a 25k and in my mind a 50k was just unattainable like wow you guys are so impressive like I'm gonna come on and cheer you guys on 
and we'd rented this big house and it was just the environment and it was it was so much fun and I remember that that was my first 25k race that weekend and I took that out probably like a 10k race and I had no nutrition or anything like that and I didn't have a water bottle and I had no idea what I was doing and uh yeah I realized very quickly that you can't race a 25k the way you do a 5k or a 10k so um that didn't deter me it was just such a fun weekend and you saw just people crossing the lines just and just such excitement and so the next year, just I really got into the, that sort of trail community and friends. We would just rent a place, go camping the night before, head out to the trails, and it was just kind of really, yeah, it was an awesome experience. Then I got tempted, I guess, 2018. <laughs> that sounds like a good word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, people know it doesn't take much to tempt me. They just kind of say, hey, you want to try this? And I'll jump in with it. Um, but somebody in August had tempted me or he said, you've been doing a lot of trail racing, you should come out to our 50k Finlayson race. So I'm not okay. sure if you're familiar yes. with that terrain, but it's pretty technical. And yeah, and that was my first 50k. And that was in September. So I had maybe two to three weeks to kind of mentally gear up for that. And uh, yeah, you learned a lot from that first experience. Um, yeah, don't go out at 10k pace. <laughs> no, no, it's a stunning. And to be honest with you, that's actually what uh, really kind of solidified my like my love for that sort of um type of running it was because I was on trails that I'd never been on and I'd lived in Victoria by that point for eight years and I'd never mm. seen the views mm. that I saw on that run and I was just thinking how how is that possible I've been here so long and these are some of my favorite spots now and uh yeah you just it exposes you to a different view that yeah that you weren't mm -hmm. you can't experience just from the road Right. And and this is my physio brain coming into it too. Do you notice a difference with how much you can, you said, I, I can't really tolerate a lot of volume, but is that just on the roads? Like, do you notice a difference with what you can handle on the trails? Yeah, hundred percent. In terms of in trails, I'd never kind of clock kilometers. It'll be more of just time, like mm -hmm. time on, yeah. on the trails. Um, and absolutely it takes my body less to recover from like a 25 K or 50 K trail race compared to even a 10k on the road or half marathon on the road interesting yeah, I find wow. yeah, I recover wow. better um so I think that's also why I've gravitated towards towards that yeah so this is interesting because it's kind of funny that Carolyn asked you to talk about trails and now I'm going to ask you to go back a little bit and talk about your road running background so we're, we're talking about trails in context of you know comparison to roads you started off as a track athlete in university. Do you ever step on the track anymore or are short, like short quotes, 10 mile half marathon road races, the shortest you do these days? Where are you at with road running right now? Well, I didn't road race for a very long time. Like in BCA, I stopped in 2014, 2015. That was my last time I'd stepped on the road. Okay. Um, track, the last time I'd stepped on the track would have probably been, uh, yeah, university. I just, I stopped that. And then when I moved to Winnipeg, it was in the heat of COVID in the wintertime. So things were locked down. And so the gym that I was going to at the time here in Winnipeg, you had to wear a mask on the treadmill. Yeah. And I had to be masked or not masked, but you have to be covered when you're running outside because of the cold. So I was trying to find a solution as to how I can run without being masked. And so that's how I ended up back on the track in Winnipeg. Okay. Okay. So, and that's where we met. Exactly. Yeah. So I, in January of 2022, um, the Manitoba Running Association ha puts on like you could show up on Wednesday nights and get back on the track. So that's actually how I ended up back there was because I was looking for a solution to be able to just run without being covered, having your face covered. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I actually liked it. I'm like, oh, this is actually fun. Like, I, I, I missed that piece. Yeah. So I kind of that was just I, by default, that I ended up back on the track. And then mm -hmm. just being here in Winnipeg, there just aren't as many opportunities to, to race on the trail. Um, and so just naturally, I there was a few events that came on this year that I happened to be in town for. So those are the road ones that I joined this year. And and um, 
didn't have any expectations going into them. I was just, okay, let's see what I can do. And they're a lot of fun. And yeah, so I, I, I still like the road piece, but it's, it's not as, it's not well go, to, go out and seek out. I'll put it that way. Right. Okay. So, you know, you're being very modest. You show up to these <laughs> races and you won them all. Like I know of three that I was at that you outright won on the women's side. And that was the WPS half marathon, the WFPS half marathon, and the Islinden Gedangren 10 mile road race. So can we you... just pause for a second? Carolyn says that better than anybody I've ever heard say before. In my <laughs> I can't pronounce it. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. That, that race up in Gimli, right? In Gimli. Yeah. Winnipeg yeah, Beach. Like Gimli Gimli. Race. There yeah. you go. So like, you know, from an outsider's perspective, you would think you would be hardcore into the roads, but what you're saying is that, yeah, you just kind of fit it in around your work and your travel. Cause you travel a lot for work and yeah, you went back on the track out of convenience because you didn't have to wear a mask but this isn't like your number one love but it would almost appear like that from the outside so how do you use road racing is it just I'll do it if it's convenient I'll do it if I'm here like it would seem like it was it would be a number one priority but I don't think it is not at all what it comes down to is I love race environments, so I don't care about the training as much, but I just find um, the atmosphere is just so, like, they just really capture me. So for me, I just get super excited on race mornings, and I just love that energy. So I'll sign up for things just to be a part of that environment. But in terms of the preparation, I just, I guess I had years of having to follow a regimented program. And so now it's more of like if friends are going out for a run or going out to do an activity, that's what I use as my training. And then I'll put in like one, make sure I still put in like one quality session myself a week. But it's just that like having people to go out with and, and, and run with, it's just, that's more of, of enjoyment. I guess here in Winnipeg this winter, what surprised me is, um, yeah, that I was able to still run a road race after not much running, but I did buy my first set of cross-country skis and learned how to cross-country ski this winter. Previously, I'm a, I'm a downhill skier and I loved it. So I'd be out five, six times a week, not saying I was good, but I got out and skied like 30 to 45 minutes after work. And I just, I absolutely loved that. And I think that honestly transferred over to being able to, to run come this the, the the spring and summer very interesting hmm. yeah. so did you live close you obviously live close to a place you could ski easily after work where did you ski well lots of different places but I love the river the Cinnaboyne River um would go out to Beaudry Park which is just outside of the city just this kind of like more nature like Windsor Park go out skiing there um honestly some days I would put them on from my house and skiing down, you could literally walk out the house with your skis on, and there's a golf golf course right nearby, so I wouldn't even pack shoes or just go from your driveway and start skiing. So, and I guess as a new skier, you use more energy to try to figure out how to ski. So. Yeah, <laughs> I know a little about that. Yep. Yep. Well, and we hear that a lot, right? And I have yeah. to think that it's kind of like what trail running is is to your road running, right? It's just a little bit easier to put in that extra volume on the trails because yeah. it just doesn't beat your body up as much. So it's just not as high impact, right, to be cross-country skiing, but it's a very similar motion and it's mm-hmm. another aerobic form of exercise. So, mm-hmm. wow, I love it. Okay. Yeah. So... Switching gears a tiny bit here, we'll move into your work as a physiotherapist. So you are heavily involved with para sport. So tell us how you got into that. Like, I'm just so intrigued by this this never would have came across my radar as as a physiotherapist. So how did you even learn about it and know that, hey, that's the job for me? Yeah, well, I initially started working with Athletics Canada as as a young physio and kind of I went to a couple of the world championships with able-bodied. And um, so I'd kind of experienced working at major games overseas and, and really liked that aspect. But clinically, I really enjoyed the neural and musculoskeletal side of, of work. And so I was always just kind of looking more into that. And there's a cyclist that I met in Victoria. I started cycling more in Victoria. And 
I found out that he was involved with paracycling and so connected with him and it was actually through him that I got connected with a few people with para-athletics. But my, my starting point was essentially a, as, a, as a classifier. So for para-sport, um, all athletes need to be classified. So essentially, it's a system that's in place to help determine the eligibility uh, of an athlete to, to participate in a sport given their impairment. So that's initially how I started was more as a classifier. And you have to be a physiotherapist or a physician to be a classifier. Okay. Um, and then I started working more with the teams on that front. And then I guess I did that since 2014, 2015, and then took on a position for the Paralympic cycle for Tokyo, where I was the medical lead. Um, so heavily involved with the team at that point um, as uh, the lead therapist for the team for all major championships and games, um, including the most recent Paralympic Games. Um, but yeah, so it's honestly been a kind of a evolving process. And I've just honestly been fascinated by how the system has evolved and just what the athletes can accomplish. It's, it's really quite unique. And it challenges you in different ways. You cannot be black and white. You got to think outside the box with all your treatment methods. For sure. Um, I mean, with any patient, no patient is the same, but even right. more so when you're working with para-athletics or para-sports, um, you really have to consider all the different elements. Yeah. And it was just a different challenge and I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. We had Nate Reich on the show mm-hmm. a while back. And he, so this was the first time I'd ever, not that I'd ever heard of para-athletics, but he was talking specifically about the classifying because I, I believe he competes in the T38 category. So That's T right. stands for track. And then the 30s are like motor impairment or something. And the higher you go is like the more function you have. So there's like T38 and T37. So he was ta- it was very educational. I learned a lot in that episode. And I'd really encourage people to go back and listen. But he was saying that it is somebody's job to actually say you're in T37, you're in T38. So does it ever get how do I want to phrase this? Like dicey or do people 100%. get like, okay. Class, like, <laughs> and that's where my role comes in now. Cause I'm now my role with them is lead classified lead of classification for our program. Okay. Um, and so the thirties classes in particular, so dealing with neurological impairments, it's not cut and dry. It's not as objective as let's say an athlete with an amputation or a limb deficiency or, um, a different a different there's many many different forms of impairments obviously right. um and so whenever you're in the class like or spinal incomplete spinal cord injury um it's very it can be fluctuating a little bit so particularly class 37 and 38 where they're very high functioning but there's very specific tests that discriminate between a 37 and a 38 okay um, can you give us an example yeah let's yeah, get specific so there's a T37, so you'll have a hemiplegia. So essentially, you'll have an impair- a significant impairment of your upper and lower extremity. Um, versus when you're in a 38 class, you'll just have, essentially, you look at how the impairment impacts performance and specific to their discipline. And so depending on the sport you choose, you can be eligible or not eligible. So that's an example of just 37, where it's hemi versus 38 uh, for essentially, as you mentioned, Nate. So it would be um, upper extremity impairment. Uh, so the one one that's predominantly impacting performance. And you look at that predominantly. It doesn't mean other areas of the body are not affected, but what is having the greatest degree of impact on performance? And right. I mean, what's interesting is like certain athletes wouldn't be eligible for one event but not eligible for another event in the sport of track and field so if you look at somebody for instance who might have a limb impairment um so essentially an uh deficiency of the arm where they their their hand essentially is not functioning or they don't function of a hand um they would be considered a 47 class What's interesting about that is they're eligible for competition in the sprints distances, but not um, the longer or middle track distances because there's not enough of an impact on right. their performance. In a sprint, okay. you're in a blocked position. Yes. Standing, so you start blocks versus distance running, 800 meter, 1500 meter, 5000. What happens right. there is 
there's less of an impact on their performance. So they cannot compete. So if somebody enters um, as a 1500 meter with that impairment, they're not eligible. But if they want to shift down and compete in 100 meters up to 400, they're considered eligible according to that classification criteria. That makes complete sense. Oh, this is interesting. So I assume this is can get quite political sometimes, eh? One hundred percent. And there's always like I'm always working on appeals. Um, this year there was very very challenging with certain appeals again in the thirties classes, cl- athletes who might be during one period classified as a thirty seven, and the next time four years later when they have to be reclassified, they get classified as a thirty eight. And that changes everything in terms of your yeah, their training and everything. So how many people, you're now the lead person in this. How many other people are doing the actual evaluations and the physical assessments of these athletes? Yeah. So we, in Canada, we have national classification system. And then um, for athletes to be competing on our on our team for Athletics Canada, like you need to, if you're on our Canadian team, you're internationally classified. So there's only certain events that you can go to every year where you're internationally classified. So uh, to be classified internationally, it's essentially comprised of a panel of two individuals. And um, in terms of in, within the world, I couldn't tell you how many classifiers there are. There's a number, but in Canada, there's definitely, there's definitely um, a sh- I'll say a shortage, I should say, but it's, it, we don't have many. Um, so it is sometimes a challenge. Um, yeah, the classification strategy, sometimes we want to continue to grow it. Um, but for athletes to compete at the international scene, they have to be classified internationally versus just nationally. So I have another question for you on this related to very specifically to my current role in my work, which is I now work with vision, vision loss rehabilitation Canada. So the vision loss part of it, not the physical part of it, which is very interesting as a physiotherapist working in rehabilitation in a non orthopedic area of, of disability. And so I guess my question to you there is, do you assess non-orthopedic elements of disability like vision loss, like pretend, I don't know, is hearing loss considered part of Paralympic um, classification? Like what, what areas besides just physical are there? Yeah, it's a good question. So there's, there's three. So physical impairment and you have a whole wide variety. So a neurological cases, a limb deficiency cases, motor impairment cases, just to name a few. Then you have the visual category. So absolutely. Have that. And then right now, across all sports and parasport for visual impairment, that system is kind of in the process of being revised because there's three categories for visual impairment athletes. Essentially, there's one that's considered like we'll use the example in track and field. So T or F, F refers to field, T refers to track, 11. That means complete visual loss. Okay. And then there's this category would be a T12. I should go back. So T11, all these athletes, they will have a guide. They require a guide. Their vision is non-existent. Right. The category next up would be 12. So T or F12. And these athletes, they have the option of competing with or without a guide. Now, these athletes, their vision is significantly impaired, um, so that's why they have the option of competing with a guide. You'll never see these athletes, though, in T12, wearing any form of eyewear in the sense that, like, um, eye mask, because they still have some element of vision. Right. But you okay. will see all 11s with an eye mask. That's an absolute requirement for them to just ensure completely level playing field. Because in theory, oh, all those okay. athletes have zero vision, so it makes no difference. So they all have an, uh, an eye mask. So if you ever see a race happening, you'll know that the athletes with a complete mask yeah, and the guide yeah. have zero vision. The next step is the 12. And they will be have the option of running with or without a guide. And then you will have the next category up is a 13. So these athletes cannot race with a guide. They have impaired vision, but they have enough just to make it by without a guide. So a lot of the times these athletes will actually compete with some of the the ambulatory physical impairment athletes. So athletes with essentially the neurological cases in in like T37 and T38. And uh, 
that's the VI category. Now, what's interesting about the visual impairment is it's not specific to the sport. For instance, light plays a huge impact for certain athletes. So an athlete with one type of visual impairment may or may not be affected by light. So if they're competing at nighttime on the track, Mm-hmm. They their outcome is very different than if they're competing in the daytime. If an athlete's visual impairment is where the periphery and they are an alpine skier, ski racing, so it's not specific to their sport. So the whole where the system needs to go is working towards is to develop a system where it's more specific to the sport, like the physical impairment system is. Right, like the T thirty seven to thirty eight distinction, but in in vision impairment as well. Yeah. 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 This is, this is one area that I'm admit I'm blown away. I've only been in my role for six weeks now at Vision Loss Rehab Canada in Alberta here and learning all the different ways that vision can be impaired and you can be legally blind, but it can Mm -hmm. be peripheral, central, you know, macular where it's changing and, and, you know, spots are moving all over the place versus light and dark. And it's, uh, it's fascinating, uh, but also complicated. We don't evaluate it. We don't evaluate. Like as a physio, we don't. It has to be an ophthalmologist. Yeah. And we do course. have one other category as well, and that's intellectual impairment. So a high functioning intellectual impairment. Some of these athletes are eligible for paraathletics as well. So that's actually a category as well. So there's that's the three, physical, visual, and intellectual. Mm-hmm. Well, we went down a little bit of a rabbit hole, but I think that was absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And I was wondering if you're like, do you see ebbs and flows in like how involved you are with that job? Cause I know you have mm. another job back here in Winnipeg mm. and then you travel a lot for this, this job with athletics Canada, but would it be busier in like an Olympic year or a world championship year than it would be in the years in between? Yes. Like 2019 was crazy busy for us. Um, We were on the road a ton with the expectation. We thought at that time that the games would be in 2020. Um, And then obviously that got delayed. Um, But yes, when you have a, like a Pan Am year, Para Pan Am year, um, world championship year, um, things are busy in terms of classification. um, They occur at certain times during the year. So the first international event typically happens in February and that runs all the way through till essentially the early summer. And so we'll be on the road at different events with the athletes for these events. Um, okay. Yeah. So it does, it definitely, does it go up and down in terms of key months to be away? Yes, it does. Yeah. Yeah. So how does that work then? Like, what do you do back here in Winnipeg yeah. and how does that workplace accommodate all of this travel that you do? Yeah. So, I mean, stepping back, I'd say kind of because most of the time was when I was in Victoria. I was really grateful. I'd been in the, with that clinic for about nine years and um, they were very accommodating. They really supported my work with the team. I'd get back from a trip on the, say, a Sunday night. I'd be back in clinic Monday morning. And so you never extend your, you just, when you're in town, you'd mm-hmm. be in the clinic. Um, so I was always really grateful to them for allowing me to, mm-hmm. they knew mm-hmm. it was my, one of my passions. They knew they're really, they were great about that. Um, and we had a team of physios that I worked with. Um, we all had a similar approach to treatment. And honestly, we just kind of covered over for each other. If one of them was away, we'd follow up with their patients and vice versa. So it was honestly okay. a great team of yeah. physios that I worked with in Victoria throughout all of that period. So what I did was possible because of the environment that I was in clinically. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been possible. When I moved here, I still... Honestly, there's a lot of, when you're not on the road with the team, there's still a ton of work that you do behind the scenes, administrative and closing up from the the Paralympic cycle. There's, I was just so heavily involved remotely still that um, I held off on clinical work until, and I was also just away a fair amount during the spring and winter. Um, And so then I started up in the clinic here. And again, this clinic is in Winnipeg is very accommodating and and, um, supports they have, they understand sport and they support my role as well. So that's, that's great. how I make it work. Yeah. Why don't you just give a shout out to the clinic that you currently work at in Winnipeg? Who is supporting you so much in your role with Paralympic sport? So the clinic I'm currently at is Strive and uh, it's, yeah, it's uh, been great so far starting with starting my work with them here in Winnipeg. Awesome. Nice. 
great. Thank you, yeah. Strive. Well, it just sounds like between your work and all of this travel that you do for work that your own kind of running goals, they kind of like fall down the priority list. Is that kind of the way that you see it? You're just active, you maintain a base of fitness, and you're just kind of two, three weeks away from being fit for something? Or how do you think about where your own um, goals fall into place for you? Yeah, it's a good question. So over the honestly, I guess over the past, since probably 2018, I've never been able to identify like have one set goal race or just put all the eggs in the basket for one race because sometimes you're here, sometimes you're not. So you just take a different approach. And yet your goal is to remain have a decent level of fitness so that you can race when an opportunity presents. Um, so that's kind of the, the approach that I've, I've been using. A lot of the times you might sign up for an event and then have a dream of doing a certain race, but it doesn't necessarily work out. But you got to realize that, okay, so if it doesn't work out, you're also doing something else that you enjoy doing. So that's my approach for the past few years, I guess. And um, yeah, well, I don't think you need to change a thing because it really sounds like what you're doing is, is working for you. But I think it is worth highlighting because runners can take themselves really seriously. And it just sounds like you're the farthest thing from taking yourself seriously. And yet you're still able to perform at such a high level because you're just, you know, putting in the bread and butter kind of workouts, right? Like laying that Mm -hmm. foundation all the time. And so I think it, you know, maybe if you have been uptight or, you know, taking yourself too seriously in the past, like why not try a totally different approach? Because it sure does sound like a fun way to go about doing things. Yeah. You know, it just teaches you really to, um, yeah, not overstress about the opportunities. And I think that you enable, you you can race stronger when you're not worried about a performance Mm -hmm. and you just go in there with the, the goal of enjoying it without that same sort of yeah, worry about pressure. did your training put yeah. pressure? Did your training pay off? Did did you have that? And you do, like I do like still try to put in like one like I said one quality session and then and then you fit it in where you can. And then I mean the one positive thing I'll say is it forces you to not be overtrained. So injury exactly. rate, yeah, like you, true overtraining. Yep. Um, and it forces you just be disciplined of okay if you have one session to that you can actually dedicate and do a solid session you can get that in and and that's how yeah that's how I've taken mm-hmm. it. Yeah. yeah. I always tell my clients it's better to be ten percent undertrained than one percent overtrained. Right. Yeah. So it's like the, the main yeah. goal is that you make it to the start line. Right. And if you're the least bit overtrained, you're not going to make it to the start line. And that sucks. Right. Yeah. And it's amazing what you can do. Like when you kind of flip it from like, how much do I need to do to like, what's the minimum that I can get away with doing to kind of keep everything humming along? It's amazing what you can still do on a, on a little mm-hmm. bit of training mm-hmm. or when it's not ideal. So I think that's a refreshing perspective and a f- refreshing way to look at it. And like I said, seems to be working extremely well for you. So I wanted to touch on this funny story. So Alain, your partner, um, did shoot me off a little funny story to discuss on the podcast here tonight. Oh, and so we no, understand. Wait, you said there'd be no surprises on this yeah, podcast. Yeah, yeah, I did. That's true. Okay, I lied. <laughs> Surprise. Um, no, I just thought it was a really cute story. So you, he said the two of you were moving from Victoria mm. to Winnipeg. And you just decided on your move to just stop in and do like the Whistler Alpine Meadows race, the 25K. So this is like a Gary Robbins uh, type of race, isn't it? He he's the race director. Yeah. Yeah. So picture this, like you're driving in the car, you probably got a full car load moving all the way, you know, halfway across the country and, oh, let's just like pop off this 25K race. And you almost set a course record. You're within a minute of setting a course record. But he said that en route, he might have almost disqualified you because he came like from the other way around to take pictures of you because he's a super fanboy. And somebody, um, one of the course marshals might have thought that he was pacing you when that wasn't allowed at that particular part of the race. So what do you remember about that day? Uh, that, that week was honestly insane. Like so much was happening. So bit of background I just come off the summer I just got back from Tokyo uh from the Paralympic Games we essentially had two weeks or I had two weeks in clinic left which on a side note was probably the hardest I like if ever you've had to say goodbye to patients in clinic that's probably the hardest thing like to have to try Mm -hmm. to do so it was a pretty emotional week for me just having to say bye to patients and whatnot wrap up I agree and um 
then on the we were moving yeah the race was probably on the weekend and there's a tuesday night i was meeting up with some friends from my last run and some of the guys said oh we're doing this whistler race and there's still i think a spot or two left in the 25k I'm like huh I'm like, should we, can I fit that in? Can we make that work? <laughs> so I'm like, okay. So, of course you did. So, we, so yeah, we packed it with the movers came, I think on the Friday, we were off the island on the Saturday. We arrived Whistler Saturday night. To be honest with you, that was actually one race. I'm like, I have no idea how it's going to go. It was a beautiful Saturday and in terms of the day before the race and it was sunny and then classic coastal weather. It was pouring rain on the Sunday, but I was just so excited to actually have the opportunity to still race. And so I went out there, just I was all smiles at the beginning. And I guess it had been so long since I've done any serious training that I took it out hard. And then I remember, I've never felt like I've hit the wall in a race. I'll put it that way. Mm-hmm. With two kilometers to go is when I see him. And at this point, I'm like actually full on stopped. I'm just like, I, I can't make it to the finish line. He's like, you got to go. Like, you got to keep going. And I remember seeing him like, you got to get out of here. Like, they're going to think you're pacing me and I've come this far and like, you got to hide. You got, you can't be near me because I knew the rules. You cannot have a right, he, right. He just came out of the bushes and had to be standing there and just was telling me I needed to keep running. And that was it. And uh, I just remember thinking, what are you doing? You just, just go. They're going to. Yes. Um, and then I came through and it was honestly one of those, it was a, it was a great day. Um, but the deal was for me to be able to race is that he said, we needed to be in Jasper that night because we were moving. Oh and my. so he's like, you're only allowed to do it if you can guarantee that we're on the road at noon. So that means you have to finish the race by like 1130 or something. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I'll do Extra that. Extra incentive. So the race started at 9 a.m. And I came in at like 11.28. It was like just under two and a half hours. And I'm like, okay. And we were in the car at, at noon and back in Jasper that, or we'd arrived in Jasper that oh night. My, so. Oh my And he goodness. said that Gary Robbins like presented you with your award early so that you could yeah. hit the road and make it. <laughs> oh my yeah. word. That's that a is story. A really, that's a that's... great story. But did he also have to kind of, run back and explain to Gary himself like I wasn't pacing her and she didn't cheat yeah because yeah. I had not seen him the entire race and it was literally just that you come out of the you're coming down the woods and some back whistler trail or whistler trails and there's a you cross a service road and then but I cross the service road and continue down the woods he was on the service road but there was also somebody standing there that saw him and there was just complete confusion that was it there was no and I think yeah. the marshal was just um, trying to do her job. And so she sure. radioed into to, yeah, to Gary. I said, hey, there's this guy here. <laughs> do you think? Anyway, so he ran down the service, continued down the service road. Meanwhile, I'm going yeah. all the way through the bushes and whatnot. And uh, But they very quickly realized there was, there was no issue. And, and He just it, wanted to get that perfect picture with you. Yeah. <laughs> to actually, one of the photos. He, yeah. So there's a photo yeah. of that. It's pretty funny. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Oh my goodness. What a great story. And he also told us um, that when the two of you got together, he didn't know how good of a runner you were. So he would like, you two went for a run on your first date and he was like trying to not act like he was completely out of breath. Um, Did you, did you know, did he do a good job? Was he a good actor? Yeah, he was a pretty good actor. I thought, um, to be honest with you, later on, I found out I love to chat when I'm running and and it's actually to to my detriment because sometimes I lose track and fall. Um, but I was just chatting away. So his also strategy was to keep me talking so that he didn't have to talk. <laughs> so he picked a topic and I just went off on a rabbit hole. And, oh my uh, gosh. and so he thought if I was talking, I'd get out of breath faster. Is what it right. Came down to, but... <laughs> okay. So are you ready for our five rapid fire questions? Sure. <laughs> okay. So our first question is, do you have a running mantra, a favorite running mantra? And if so, what is it? To be honest with you, I don't. However, what I always do is I have t- a certain type of music that I will listen to ahead of time. And it's just, you'll pick a certain line from whatever you're listening to. And then that just goes on repeat and you get that beat. Mm. And for me, Bob Marley is actually the I love reggae. I, I grew up on reggae okay. music, and it's like this 
got this groove. Yeah, so it's something that has a good beat to it and it's upbeat, it's positive. And I usually, there's some line that always kind of gets stuck in your head and yes. you just go to the beat of it. And yeah, and there's so many amazing lines with Bob Marley that I can't even think, but yeah, so that's usually what I, what my strategy is. And Okay, that's, for me. that's great. Yeah. <laughs> and that's true, eh? Songs really yes. do get in your head and then they it's do. just on repeat, on repeat, and you can't get it out. So that works perfectly for, yeah. for a race mantra. Like it. Do you have a favorite place to run? You grew up in the French and Swiss Alps, and then you lived in Victoria. Like you've ran in some beautiful places. Does anything stand out as a favorite? Unpredictable, like like the trails, the woods that are surrounded by ocean views. Like I absolutely love that. Where it's just you can get lost in the moment. You don't have any music. You're just you're just running. Um, and I'll have to say I have done a fair amount of running over in Europe, in um, mm. France, and just some of the cobblestone vineyards that you're running oh. through. So if I have to be on a road, it would be mm. that would be the road place. And then mm-hmm. otherwise, it'd be someplace surrounded by water views and mountains is what I love. Mm. Well, you're going to have to tell me the best water view and mountain and cobblestone places here in Winnipeg because <laughs> I haven't <laughs> found them yet. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I actually just got back from Falcon Lake, so had a few good views today. (laughs) Okay, okay. Uh, All right, Patricia, do you have any bucket list races on your list right now? What's your number one? So I've never actually, I used to ski in the Alps, um, Mm -hmm. but I've never actually done trail uh, over there. So it had been road at the time. So one of the Alpine trail races, or the other one that's kind of on my radar is the Trans Rockies um, stage Mm. race. Yes. I like the stage race because for me, 50K is kind of what I like capping. That's my interest. And so stage races, you can do some of those trans rockets. It's like you don't go more than 40 or 50K a day, um, but mm-hmm. you get to cover some amazing terrain. So for me, that's that's something I'm pretty interested in. Okay. Do you have a favorite running book or movie? The book I think that stands out for me the most is actually one my sister gave me, um, The Champion's Mind. If you haven't We've read never it. heard that one. No, oh, that's or, a new one. It's amazing. Okay. So, well, it's a it's a great book, and it really can relate to 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 many different elements of your life. And I think one of the pieces for me that stood out was embracing the grind. Like, just doesn't, doesn't matter how you get to the end. You know, no situation is always going to be perfect, and you just gotta do what you can to kind of achieve your goal. And just doesn't matter how you achieve it, kind of thing. So, mm, when you're right. doing some of those longer races, just get to the end and. However it is, yes. that's how it is. And there'll be better days. So, yeah. Yes. Okay. Final question. Do you have a favorite post-run indulgence? After a hard race, it's one of those big burrito wraps that are probably five pounds that have absolutely mm-hmm. everything mm-hmm. in it. So that gets me through. Or if I'm uh, just enjoying a run with friends, it's always my coffee and a pastry or something like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, the, the big burritos post-race. Um get my energy levels back up pretty quick so mm-hmm. that's great but. yummy wonderful oh uh, well this has been fascinating we hit on some a lot of different things that we don't talk about with with yeah, every guest sure. and you're a wealth of knowledge uh it was so fun to to pick your brain and to learn more about you so thank you for coming on the show and for your time tonight thanks a lot no it's been uh, great chatting 